the Missional Life Podcast, inspiring kingdom-minded believers around the world to live the mission of God in their lives. All right, welcome back to the Missional Life Podcast. Today, we have Erica Wiggenhorn. Erica is an award-winning author and the founder of Every Life Ministries, a ministry that encourages you to discover your unique purpose, accept God's promises, and live by His power. But she's recently released a new book called Letting God Be Enough, Why Striving Keeps You Stuck and How Surrender Sets You Free. Erica, we're excited to hear about what is what God is saying through your new book. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Amanda. It's great to be with you today. Thank you. Absolutely. We are, we're so honored to have you on the show. Mm-hmm. Erica, one of the main themes of your book is, is this thing called imposter syndrome. What is imposter syndrome and how do we know if we're struggling with it in our own lives? Yeah. So imposter syndrome is sort of a, a newer phenomenon that's just come into, uh, into speak lately uh, in the last 20 years or so. But essentially what it is, is it's this feeling that you are a fraud and anything that is going well in your life, anything that uh, you are experiencing some level of success in your life, that's merely a fluke. Um, around the next corner is failure. It's all going to crumble at any moment. You're going to be exposed and the real you is going to come out. Mm -hmm. And so people that struggle with imposter syndrome, um, often experience a, a huge disconnect from the way other people perceive them and the way that they feel about themselves on the inside. And so they live with this fear that if people really knew how I felt about myself, if people really knew that I, I can't actually perform, I don't actually have what it takes to get through what I'm facing right now, they would reject me. And so it's a very fear-based Uh, mindset, and it can really drive people in two significant directions. It can drive them into striving, where they are just living in endless cycles of performance, trying to be all things to all people at all times, uh, people-pleasing, perfectionism, um, hyper-controlling, hyper-managing, and manipulating everything because they feel like it has to be at this certain level to keep up with their image that they're trying to portray. Or it can go the polar opposite direction into complete passivity where people just give up entirely and kind of check out and just sort of sit around and and don't really pursue anything anymore. And so it it becomes a very paralyzing um, mentality, a very paralyzing lie that the enemy uses against us to really keep us from God's best for us. Hmm. You know, and as you mentioned um, from earlier, just talking about how it's become a more known phrase in the last 20 years, you know, in particular, the last 10, 15 years, we've seen the rise of social media. How has that impacted imposter syndrome from what you've seen and what you've studied in writing this book? Yeah, great question, Amanda. So I think social media, maybe some people aren't going to like this answer, but I think social media actually exacerbates the problem of imposter syndrome because the reality is is that most of the things that we're putting on social media are not our day-to-day life right we're, we're only putting the highlight reels on there and so it's easy to live in this disconnect of hey here's my life out there on you know on my insta nine or my latest reel right this is my life for all of you to see, uh, but then nobody really sees our inside perceived life, what we're really living, how we're really feeling. And, you know, that's a big sign. That's a big signal of imposter syndrome is that we isolate. Um, We don't, we might put ourselves out there on social media, but the real us, uh, nobody knows what's, Nobody knows the real us. They know the image that we're putting out there for everyone to see. And so social media has really given imposter syndrome a platform to thrive. Hmm. Wow. 
what stands out to me is you kept on coming back to this idea of fear and you used the word paralyze and you kept you just kept on coming back to that theme and that's really what the enemy wants to do is he wants to use fear and he wants to paralyze us from going after the calling and those things that god has called us to do uh in other people's lives and in our own lives wow amazing you know this seems like it's probably you know you came up with this imposter they came up with the imposter syndrome maybe 20 years ago but has imposter syndrome always existed do we see any kind of evidence of this even like in the bible i mean i know you've done some studies tell us about that what have you found uh imposter syndrome in the bible Yes. So uh, when my friend first pointed out to me that I had imposter syndrome, I was like, what in the world is imposter syndrome? And I began researching it. And so, you know, there's a lot out there. There's a lot out there that psychologists have written, thought leaders, um, you know, cultural influencers. You can find a a ton out there on imposter syndrome right now. Uh, But because I'm a Bible girl and, uh, you know, the passion of my life is to get your face in the book and live like it's true. Uh, I began to look in the book, right? Scripture. What does scripture say about this? What is Mm. God's antidote for this struggle with self-doubt and a fear of inadequacy and a fear of failure? And I came across Moses, whom I now fondly refer to as the greatest self-doubter of the Bible. (laughs) And what was so fascinating to me about Moses is, you know, the world tells us that when we're struggling with imposter syndrome or, or a fear of inadequacy, the most effective thing we can do is unroll our resume, cite all of our past successes and experiences, look ourselves in the mirror and tell ourselves why we're enough, why I'm the girl for this job. Um, You know, give ourselves essentially a a good pep talk and remind ourselves of, of our past successes and the things that we're good at. And that's not necessarily bad advice because when we're constantly beating ourselves up and downplaying our gifts and downplaying our experiences, that doesn't honor God either, right? Mm. That's essentially telling God, you know, well, when you made me, you made a mistake, right? We know God never makes mistakes. So that's not bad advice to remind ourselves of the gifts and, and the ways that God has uniquely created us. But it is inadequate advice because there are times when we are going to face a circumstance or a situation in life and there's nothing on our resume to prepare us for it, right? When my husband's coworker walked into his office two weeks ago and said, my 11-year-old daughter has bone cancer, you know, his coworker, Rachel, is a brilliant woman. You know, she has graduate degrees. She's run million dollar companies, but there's nothing on Rachel's resume to be the mom of a cancer patient. I mean, there, there are things in life we will face where no amount of pep talk or looking back at the past can prepare us for what we're facing today. And so what God said to Moses in that situation, when God was essentially putting him in a new assignment, this is brand new, hasn't done this before, doesn't know what it's going to look like, how it's going to work, which is really pretty much indicative of our human condition on earth, right? uh, God didn't do that. He didn't unroll Moses's resume and give him a bunch of props as to why he was the guy God called for the job. In fact, he didn't mention anything about Moses's skill set at all, which you kind of think, well, gee, that would have been nice of God to maybe just give Moses a little encouragement. Like, and he could have said so many things to Moses. He could have said, well, of course I would pick you to go to Pharaoh. You grew up in Pharaoh's court. You know how the court works. You speak Egyptian, you understand their religion, you understand their culture, you've been trained as a prince, you understand how to run governments and fight wars and do battles. I mean, of course, you're the guy for the job, Moses. I mean, when we think about it, God could have done that, but he didn't do that at all. He did exactly the opposite. He said, Moses, I'm with you. I'm with you. 
It really didn't depend on Moses. And I think this is where we get stuck because we want to look inside of ourselves and say, oh yeah, I can understand why God put me here or has called me to this or has called me to that. I want to look in the mirror and feel like I have what it takes to get the job done. But God doesn't, that's not how God works. God wants us to look at him. And essentially he was inviting Moses to take his eyes off of himself, off of self-reliance and to surrender over to the, over to the God who already had the whole plan in place and figured it all, had already figured it all out. And we know that because he goes on to say, Moses, I will be with you. And when you lead the people out now, I don't know, Amanda, I don't know, Dan, I don't know if you guys write in your Bible, but that word when in my Bible has a big circle around it, because what I immediately noticed was God did not say to Moses, uh, I will be with you. And if you are spiritual enough to understand my will, you will lead the people out. Or if you are obedient enough, so then I can bless this endeavor, you will lead the people out. Or if you are a strong enough leader or a faithful enough servant or a wise enough um, elder in the people of Israel, then you will lead the people out. There was no if. God simply said, when I will be with you and when you lead the people out. And I took so much comfort in that because I realized, you know what? God's plan for Moses did not depend on Moses's performance. It rested on God's promises. Amen. And that means God's plan for my life does not depend on my performance. It rests on God's promises and he's with me the whole way. Never leave you, never forsake you. That's God's promise to us. And so 99% of the time, what we see in scripture is when God calls his people to something, he doesn't sit them down and explain to them, listen, here's why I picked you and you're the guy for the job. God doesn't ever do that. I can't think of one example in scripture where God does that. But what we do see 99% of the time is the person respond to that call of God, either with a, well, why in the world would you pick me? Or I'm too afraid, or I don't understand, or this is way bigger than me, or what in the world is just, what in the world is happening? Uh, you know, let me run to my cousin, Elizabeth. Maybe she could explain this to me. Uh, those are the responses we see from God's people. And so we have to get past this idea that if God has called us to something, we have to be able to fully wrap our minds around it and make sense of it and feel like we're up to the task. Our feelings are indicators but they should not be dictators. God is greater than our feelings. That's gold right there, that our mm -hmm. feelings are indicators, but not dictators, because so many of us are really controlled by our emotions, aren't we? We're led by our emotions, and that's when we find ourselves in a lot of trouble, don't we? Well, it's an easy default setting to go to, to be, well, I feel this way, and you, sometimes it's easy to just run with that and but it's yeah. best to go back to, okay, God, this is who you are. I feel this way and you know this, but how do I respond in this situation? What do you have for me in this? What do you want me to say right now in this circumstance? So, and our flesh will always default into self-doubt mm. because in and of ourselves, we know we are inadequate. We can't carry out a plan of God in our human flesh, right? Mm -hmm. Only God, God has to do it through us. It's bigger than us. It's entirely other than us. We are just merely the vessel that God works through. And so whenever it is of God, we will always feel inadequate. Mm -hmm. If we don't feel inadequate, that ought to be the red flag. Mm -hmm. If we look in the mirror, you know, God calls us to something big and we're like, oh, I, I totally get why God chose me. I mean, yes, I, man, I meet every 
box. I can check every box to be the girl for this job. Absolutely. When we start feeling that way, then we're no longer relying on God and we're no, we're trying to strive and execute God's will in our own strength. And that's a dangerous, that's a dangerous thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, God promised Moses, I will be with you. You know, when yeah. I love how you brought that up, that you circled that in your Bible, when, not if, if you do this, if you meet this check mark, if you can draw back on that past experience, it's no, when, when. Yeah, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. That's, mm-hmm. that's the promise. Keep going. Don't give up. Don't give it. It's not on you. It's on me. It's on me. And, you know, if we don't put it on him, then like you said, we start striving. And I love the contrast that you make, particularly even in the uh, in the title of your book, Striving and Surrender. And so it's kind of the, this paradox between striving and surrender. And I, I like how you, you put that, but I want to hear a little bit more. How can we tell when we've surrendered? How do we know when we are really relying on God? And do you think this is really God's plan for his children all along? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we see that, you know, we forget in the Moses narrative that when God called Moses to go and deliver the people, you know, we forget the part that Moses had already tried to to do that once in his own strength back in Exodus Mm. 2, right? That's kind of what got him into this mess in the first place (laughs) is he tried to deliver the people and it was an epic fail because he did it in his own strength. And then he fled to Midian and he stayed there for a really long time. Um, And yet we get the sense that the whole time Moses was there, he somehow knew he didn't really belong there. I mean, we know he got married. We know he had sons, you know, he named his son alien or not of this land, you know? So there's something in Moses that's like, I'm here, I'm in Midian, but I don't really belong here. There's something else out there for me. And I think a lot of us feel that way, um, especially in our faith journeys, right? Like, you know, we're, we're doing the thing, we're going to church on Sunday morning, um, you know, maybe we're serving somewhere, you know, maybe we're helping out with vacation Bible school during the summer, but there's this sense that I, you know, I thought following Jesus was going to be more than this. Um, it gets almost like ho-hum, you know, kind of date, like a daily thing. And it, we lose our awe. We lose our wonder in our relationship with God. And we don't really understand why. And I think a big part of it is because we're spending so much of our time, so much of our lives, just striving and carrying out the, the responsibilities and duties of our lives in our own strength. And I love it you know, that, that whole adage of, um, a good thing can become a bad thing when it takes the place of the best thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where a lot of us are living. We're doing a lot of good things. Um, but it has become a bad thing because we're so distracted doing all of the good things that we haven't really sat down before God and said, am I doing the best thing? Am I doing the one thing that you've created me to do in my corner of a wor- of the world for such a time as this? And that's a dangerous prayer uh, because God's going to, you know, God is a big God and he does big things and he doesn't do things in a way that makes sense to us. And so one of the one of the signs that we are stuck in this place of striving is if praying that prayer terrifies you, you're probably stuck in a cycle of striving um, and a willingness to just surrender it all and say, here I am, God send me, uh, terrifies you. Uh, another big Another big signal of striving, and we touched on this a little bit already, but there's is isolation and hyper control, hyper management. You have this mindset that, you know, if I step out of this position, if I'm not present in this relationship in this way, everything's going to fall apart. 
And so there is this elevated sense of our involvement to keep every all the ducks in a row and all the plates spinning on the poles without them crashing down. Uh, both of those are real signals that we're stuck in a place of striving versus surrender is really just this idea of saying, God, you made me. Uh, I, I don't fully understand yet what your plan is for my life. Moses certainly ha had no idea what was ahead of him when God called him in that burning bush moment. I'm sure parting the Red Sea was the last thing on Moses's mind as to what God was going to do. Um, but this idea of surrender is just saying, God, here I am, send me. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know how it's all going to work out. I don't know how hard it's going to be um, because there will be elements of hard when God calls us to follow him uh, because we're living in a world that is not our home and we're living in a broken world and yet we're carrying out beautiful plans. Um, but it's that willingness to say, I, I want to go where you're going, God, uh, even though I can't wrap my mind around it and I can't see the end from the beginning like you can. I want to go where you're going mm. and that's a place of surrender and that's place that's exciting, but it's also a little bit scary. Uh, I, I like to use this illustration. God really pointed this out to me in my own life and it may be an illustration you've heard before, but there's a man and he's standing on the edge of Niagara Falls and there's a tightrope extended from one side of Niagara Falls to the other. And he has a crowd around him and he turns and he says, if I walk across this tightrope do you think I'll make it there and back without falling and plummeting to my death and the people are like well we don't know but it'd be cool to watch so you know give it a try and so he goes and he's going across the tightrope he's coming back the people are going crazy you know they're clapping cheering and they're like oh my gosh you're amazing what else can you do show us your wonders show us what else you can do we've never seen anything like you and so the man takes a wheelbarrow and he says, do you believe I can push this wheelbarrow across this tightrope uh, without dropping the wheelbarrow or plummeting to my death into the raging falls? And the people are like, well, you walked across. So sure. Yeah, go for it. So the guy takes the wheelbarrow. He takes it across. He comes back. The people standing on the ledge are going crazy, you know, clapping, cheering. Oh, my goodness. No one's like you. We've never seen anything like this. What else can you do? Show us your wonders. And the man quiets the crowd down and he looks at them and he says, do you believe I can push this wheelbarrow across the tightrope without dropping the wheelbarrow or plumbing to my death? And the people are like, well, we just saw you do it. Of course we believe you can. And he grabs the nearest person and he says, well, then get in the wheelbarrow. And see, that's really the surrender, right? So many of us, we want to stand on the safety of the ledge and we want to clap and we want to cheer and we want to say, oh God, there's no one like you. You're amazing. Show us your wonders. What else can you do, God? Amaze us. You know, we, we believe incredible things about you. But then God says, get in the wheelbarrow. And we're like, uh, maybe not, <laughs> right? And the thing of it is, is once we're in the wheelbarrow and God's pushing us, right? And our behind is nestled down over that tire and our legs are, you know, dangling over the edge and God's got us in the grip of his almighty hands. We can't see where God is going because what's in front of us is at the back of our head. All we can see is God's face. But God can see where he's going. But all we can see is him. And that's really a picture of surrender. That's really what surrender looks like. We don't know where God is going. We have no idea how much longer we're going to be on the tightrope until we get to the other side. We don't know what's on the other side. But what we do know is that God's going to get us there. He's not going to drop us. He's not going to leave us. He's not going to let us go. And he is looking right over our head and has a vision of where he wants to take us. Mm -hmm. So will we get in the wheelbarrow? That's surrender. Mm -hmm. That's so good. 
Well, with that, um, can you speak to just practical ways to stop responding in fear and instead surrendering in faith when God calls us to serve him? How do we get to that point where we say, okay, God, I'm going to get in this wheelbarrow. I'm going to trust you. How do we get to that place? Yeah. How do we get past that gulp stage? Because when you were telling that story, I was, I was listening and then like I pictured myself getting that and I was like, now you get in the wheelbarrow and I like literally just gulped like, <laughs> and I think that's where we all are as right? Christians. Like we're just like, yeah. and so how do we get past, you know, she said it more eloquently, but how do we get past that gulp, that gulp stage? Yeah, such a great question. You know what? And I would love to be able to say, you know what? Here's step one, two, and three, go for it. Uh, it would, wouldn't it be nice, right? I think what we, ha- what we realized in scripture is, you know, this, the antidote to our fear of inadequacy, to that fear of getting in the wheelbarrow is intimacy. Mm-hmm. It's intimacy with God. And intimacy is intentional right? It's, if I were to go out on a date with my husband, if he were to say, Hey, Erica, like, let's, let's go out Friday night, just you and me kids at home. I just want to spend time with you. I just want to, you know, I want to hear what's going on. I want to hear your heart. I want to know what you're thinking. I want to know what you're feeling. Uh, And I, and I have things I want to share with you as well. And so we show up on our date, we slide into the booth and my husband just starts talking, right? He starts telling me about his week. He starts telling me about what's on his heart, where he's struggling and my phone dings. So I start rummaging through my purse to make sure it's not our kids calling us. And then I, I actually realize it, it's a message from somebody that I forgot to do something So I rummage through my purse again and I get out my day planner and I write myself a note and, and then I quick write the checkout and, uh, you know, sell the money that I forgot to pay. And, you know, how long would it take now? I don't want to, you know, I don't want to put any words in your mouth, Dan, but for my husband, if that were to happen, that scenario were to happen in about 7.6 seconds, he would just shut down he would stop talking. He'd be like, you're distracted. You're not fully here. You're not really listening to me. You know, I'm trying to share my heart with you and you're, you know, paying the electric bill right now. Like you and me, like, you know, I I want, I want your attention. I want your heart. Mm -hmm. And yet I think so many of us, we do this with God. And then we wonder why God feels far away, or we wonder why you know, when God invites us into this intimate place of looking into his face and forgetting about the rest of the world and allowing him to just speak into our lives and take us from point A to point B, we are like, well, it's because we lack that intimacy because we haven't allowed God to speak to us because we haven't given him our full attention right? We, we want him to shout over the noise of the world, but we know our God is a God who whispers in the quiet. Mm. And so I think a big part of this is saying, how do I grow? How do I grow in my intimacy with God? How do I make that a reality in my life? And, and for a lot of people, myself included, you know, we hear the same answers. We have to read your Bible. You have to pray. Um, and, and that's true, but that can also be very hard. That can be very overwhelming. Um, I lived in years of struggling to read and understand my Bible. And it sat on my nightstand much more than I ever opened it. And so I understand that feeling. So I would say, um, get in some sort of a Bible study, get into some type of community where you have other believers around you, keeping you on track. Um, that was a huge game changer for me. Um, you know, you can head over to my website. I have two free eBooks. You can take them. They're yours for the downloading. Uh, it's called a busy women's bundle, but men can read it too, but it's 50 days to intimacy with God. Uh, and there's also, uh, the busy woman's guide for praying for friends and family. So if that's you, you struggle to read your Bible, you struggle to pray, 
grab those two free resources. It'll, it'll give you practical ways to incorporate prayer into your life and a practical way to develop intimacy with God. Um, but do something, you know, just sitting back and doing nothing is not going to grow the relationship. You know, if I continued to just rummage through my purse through the entire date night, uh, my husband and I would probably be further apart emotionally at the end of that night than we were when we showed up. So do something because you're either growing closer to God or you are falling further away from him. You know, I often say, um, you know, if we're casual about our Christianity, we'll quickly become a casualty of our culture. And we see that a lot with Christians. They're really falling uh, they're becoming casualties of the culture and they're adopting cultural truths that run completely counter to what God teaches us in his word. And they're not even realizing that they're doing it. The enemy is getting in there with his lies and they're taking root and it's affecting our ability to trust God, to surrender to God, to believe God and to live in the peace and the power and the joy that God desires to give us. I'm so glad you said that because I see that you're, you've authored at least three Bible studies and it sounds like you've authored a couple more uh, on your website that, <clears throat> that you're sharing about. And so clearly you have some wisdom and you have some discernment on this. And so, you know, what are people, what have you seen? What are people missing when they don't study scriptures for themselves personally? And, you know, are, can you share any more practical steps from getting kind of from that point where you're, you have that Bible on the nightstand next to your bed to getting into it and being intimate with your father? Yes. Great question. So, you know, I, I say the passion of my life, uh, I mentioned this earlier is to get your face in the book and to live like it's true. And community is really the game changer in this whole process. Uh, as long as we are just trying to follow Jesus on our own, uh, we're going to forfeit the abundant life that he intended for us. Because what we really see is that, you know, our salvation is personal. No one can make us, you know, uh, confess our sins to Jesus other than Jesus himself, right? That's something, uh, that moment of salvation is personal. That's just a transaction that happens between you and Jesus and, and nobody else. Uh, but once we have made that personal profession of faith to say, Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe you rose from the dead and my sins are paid for. And I trust that your work, your death and resurrection uh, secured a place for me in heaven. Once that personal salvation has happened, the call to follow God is communal. We see this in the way Jesus lived with his disciples. We see this with the early church, you know, in Acts 2, 42 and 43, uh, we really see the X marks the spot of how these early believers lived, uh, the, the treasure of how to follow Jesus well. And we see there that they um, devoted themselves to the scriptures. They fellowshiped every day. They walked out their faith with other believers. They prayed and they... Um, it says that they broke bread together, which essentially means that they were part of a local family of believers who were carrying out the traditions and the practices of a local church. And so what we're seeing now, especially after the pandemic, is we're seeing a lot of people that are, they said, my salvation is personal and therefore my call and my following must be personal as well. So if I want to stay home and I want to watch a sermon on YouTube, I, I did church. I don't have to go to a family of believers. I don't have to fellowship. I don't have to serve. I don't have to break bread uh, with the family of God to follow Jesus. And while technology can be really convenient and there are definitely days when it is warranted to stay home and watch a sermon on YouTube, we will never thrive in our call mm. to follow Jesus. We may not even ever know what our actual call is if we do not commit to the family of God, if we do not commit to community. We see this so poignantly in Paul's life right? Um, 
Paul was anti-Jesus, about as anti-Jesus as anybody could get. He was on a mission to just destroy every Christian he came across. And he's on his way to Damascus and Jesus appears to him and basically is like, yo, dude, stop persecuting me. You're going to start serving me. And Paul becomes a Christian. You know, it's crazy. It's crazy. Personal moment, right? Him and Jesus. In fact, we're told that all the people that were traveling with Paul didn't even know what had happened. They didn't hear Jesus's voice. They didn't know what transpired between Paul and Jesus in that moment. It was an entirely personal encounter between Mm -hmm. Paul and Jesus. Now, fast forward 10 years. Suddenly, now we're in Acts 13. And Paul is in the church at Antioch. And he's serving alongside Barnabas. And the Holy Spirit sweeps in. And he basically says, okay, this this is the moment Paul you're going to start living out this call. You are going to now go and be a missionary to the Gentiles, just like Jesus told you 10 years earlier on the road to Damascus. The call was issued in the context of community. And so for most of us, you know, this goes back to the whole concept of letting God be enough. Most of us are never going to wake up one day and look in the mirror and go, you know what? I know God has called me to do this and I know why he's called me to do it. And I can see exactly why he chose me. 99.999% of us are never going to have that experience. What the experience that we are going to have, however, is we're going to commit to a local family and believers. We're going to show up to Bible study or to a life group or a discipleship group. We're going to start serving on a ministry team. And somebody in that family of believers is going to turn and say to us, hey, have you ever thought about starting a podcast? Because you'd be really great at that. Or have you ever thought about teaching a discipleship group? Because you have the gift of teaching. God uses the family of God to issue the call. And that's exactly what we see in Acts 13.1. The Holy Spirit came in and he spoke through those leaders that were gathered around Paul and Barnabas. And they said, now's the time. Now's the time for you to go live out that call, Paul. So we will forfeit a whole bunch if we don't take seriously God's command for community and to be committed to a local body of believers for their sakes, as well as for our own. So good. So I think what you're saying in all that is that as we, as we step out, as we follow God, and as we kind of do those assignments that he has, everything should be pretty much easy after that point, right? Yeah, because that's totally the way it was for the disciples. I mean, they like lodged at the Ritz Carlton and everybody loved them. And why no. why does it why does it feel like the things we try hardest at and we try to follow God best at are the most difficult? Why why is that? Because we're in a battle, hmm. right? Uh, when we're following God, you know, we're bringing a touch of heaven to earth right? Uh, We are fighting against the spiritual forces of evil, right? That's what Paul tells us in in his letter to the Ephesians. Um, Chances are, if it is a call of God, you're going to face a lot of opposition. You know, Moses certainly faced a lot of opposition. You know, he faced two million people grumbling constantly, Uh, It kind of sounds like living with teenagers some days, (laughs) (laughs) but uh, there's always going to be opposition. You know, Paul certainly faced opposition, even, even his ministry partner, Barnabas, you know, they had a falling out. I think anytime uh, we are following God, conflict will arise. Uh, We, we don't deal with conflict really well as Christians, um, even though God gives us such a beautiful picture of conflict in, in the story of Acts and how he used it to actually multiply the gospel and raise up leaders that probably would never have been invested in if Paul and Barnabas hadn't gone their separate ways. Um, so we should always expect opposition. 
Um, the enemy wants us to, to think, oh, it's getting hard. This must mean God's not in it, right? Um, it's not going as fast as you would like. This must mean God's not blessing it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, and yet what we see all throughout scripture is that there is almost always a period of time between the call, when the call is first issued and when the call begins to be carried out, there's a wait, you know, uh, Abraham waited, Moses waited, Gideon waited, Elijah waited, David waited, uh, Ezekiel waited, Jeremiah waited. I mean, even Paul waited, right? He, he goes on his second missionary journey and he goes north and God shuts the door and he goes west and God shuts the door. And then finally Jesus shows up and says, Paul, don't be afraid. Uh, you know, you're going to go here next. Um, so the waiting, the opposition, it's because we're in a battle and God uses those times of testing, uh, the test of waiting, the test of opposition um, to move us from a place where we stop uh, doubting our beliefs and believing our doubts. You know, God wants us to doubt our doubts and believe our beliefs. And generally how he strengthens that faith muscle in us comes through opposition. Which is where it's huge to have that community, as you mentioned earlier, that can remind us what's true, what's doubt, and to keep going, to have that perseverance. Because, you know, without each other, it's really easy just to get discouraged quickly and then get isolated. And as you mentioned Mm -hmm. in that cycle of the imposter syndrome, you know, I, yeah. I can't, I can't control it. So now I'm just going to be passive. I'm going to not do anything because look how many years have gone by. Look right. how it's not working out so far. It doesn't look like sure. it. And we need sure. that community to come in and say, no, <laughs> that's not true. Keep going. Stay the course. Absolutely. And, and absolutely. Adi- yeah. In addition to that too, it helps us identify those lies as well. Oh, you heard that too. I'm hearing that, man, that that's the enemy speaking that to us because you know, the enemy speaks those same lies to everyone. And it's that it's those things that kind of, again, instill that self doubt instill that imposter syndrome. And, and as we start being around community and as we start being, I don't like to say it, but authentic or intimate with people and opening up and kind of showing ourselves of who we really are with people, you know, it helps one, like you said, but it also helps uh, as well to identify those lies and it helps. Hey, you're dealing with that. I'm dealing with that. Like we can partner on this together. We can start praying through this together. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, really what the kingdom is, is where we work together. You know, we, we serve God together and we need each other. We're all the body of Christ. Yeah. And looking at examples in the Bible, as you mentioned, Moses and all the other biblical people that you mentioned, you know, the waiting periods, the struggles, the opposition, um, the disciples not um, going to the Ritz Carlton. <laughs> we probably have a, lo- a whole lot more Christians who are like signing up uh, to serve in church if it meant weekly trips to the Ritz Carlton, right? Truly, yes. <laughs> but I. And circling back to the point earlier about social media mm-hmm. is when we're not open with people, when we're only posting those, those pictures and we're only posting the highlight reel, then that's the perception and it causes people to really shut off and it, it closes off that communication and causes you to begin to be uh, prone to those whispers and those lies of the enemy that make you self-isolate, that make you start believing those things that, you know, maybe you're not good enough. And that's that's the start of it. The, if the can if the enemy can isolate you, he can he can really begin that influence path you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I'd like yeah. to just talk about too. Um, you know, you mentioned earlier about your Bible sitting on your nightstand more often than opening it, and how community was a game changer for you. So, tell us a little bit about what was your path to studying the Bible with the community to writing studies yourself to impact so many people. Yeah. So when I first became a Christian, I was a teenager. I didn't grow up in church. And uh, when I came to Jesus, came to the cross, uh, my youth pastor said, okay, Erica, well, now that you're a Christian, you're going to need to have a quiet time. I was like, well, what in the world is a quiet time? You know, he's like, well, you're going to have to read your Bible and you're going to have to pray. 
You're going to have to let God speak to you. And I was like, oh, okay. So I had my nifty little student Bible, you know, where everything Jesus says is in red. And I remember sitting on my bed and opening up the Bible and, you know, Jesus is talking about uh, millstones and plowshares and mustard seeds and wheat tares. And I'm like, Jesus, how am I supposed to follow you when I can't even understand you? Right. <laughs> like I was just like, I don't know what any of this means. And I have no idea how to apply it to my life. And then I would go to church and I would hear people talking about how God spoke to them through his word or how he answered a prayer through his word. And I was like, what? Like, <laughs> this is not my experience reading the Bible. And so I kind of cycled in this guilt shame thing, right? Like I felt guilty because I didn't read my Bible and I didn't like reading my Bible because I didn't understand it. And then I felt ashamed when I did read it because it seemed like everybody else like loved their Bible and loved reading their Bible. And they were just having this great intimate time with God and their Bible. And that wasn't my experience at all. And so, you know, I'd take my Bible to church and I'd open it up during the sermon and uh, you know, I take it to college group and open it up then. But other than when somebody else was teaching me the Bible, it, it pretty much sat there and collected dust. And finally, um, after about 10 years, a good friend of mine uh, basically drugged me to Bible study and I went kicking and screaming. I did not want to go, um, one, because I didn't really get like, I don't like reading my Bible, so I'm probably really not going to like reading it in a group of people. <laughs> that was kind of my thought. And then secondly is I was embarrassed. I didn't want people to know how little I actually knew of my Bible um, because, you know, every good Christian is supposed to love reading their Bible. I mean, who wants to admit that you find it boring and irrelevant? Um, and so I went kicking and screaming. She's like, nope, you are going. And I went and I sat around a table of women who began helping me understand the Bible. It was like, I finally found the secret decoder ring and could read the red letters and they made sense. Um, and it was just such an aha moment for me. And I remember thinking, um, you know, man, if, if I would have had some kind of tool, if, if I could have had something that I could open up next to my Bible and walk me through the scripture and explain it to me. So it could have come alive to me in this way. So many years ago, how different would my life be now? Mm -hmm. And that really became the catalyst behind me wanting to create studies is I wanted to create something where, you know, somebody can open up their Bible and, I basically come alongside and say, let me explain to you a little bit historically what's going on here, a little bit culturally. This is what the people would have heard and understood when Jesus said this. Um, let, me, let me give you a modern day analogy so you can kind of feel what the people were probably feeling when this came out of Jesus's mouth. Um, that really became the passion of my heart. And when people email me and they say, Erica, for the first time, I finally feel like I understand the Bible or for the first mm -hmm. time, I actually look forward to reading my Bible. I just mm -hmm. want to jump out of my desk chair because I, I get that feeling. It's like suddenly the light bulb comes on and it comes alive in the way that God designed it. But I think, you know, again, even in my studies, I say, I'm so glad you have this book. I'm so glad you've got, you know, you've made this step, but don't do it alone. Do it with a friend because again, it comes down to community because chances are you're going to get through the book and you're going to continue to study if you're doing it in community because that's the way God designed it. Mm -hmm. So that is really, that was really the game changer for me was being committed to the, the community and as I was learning and growing with other believers, it just sparked such a fire in me of saying, I, I just want everybody out there who's struggling to read their Bible 
to have this experience because it's just like, it's like Christmas morning, you know? (laughs) (laughs) That's great. And I I just want to point out too, um, your friend that took you to that initial Bible study. I, I love that part of your story because that is a true friendship of somebody says, you know what, you may not feel like you want to go, but I know you're not going to regret it. And this is truly what you need versus like, oh, it's okay. If you don't feel like going this time, we can try again. You know, it's sometimes we need that kind of gentle or maybe not so gentle. Not, maybe not. <laughs> so gentle. I, I don't know that I would call it too gentle. It was more like you're going, get your coat on, let's go. Uh, yeah. Sometimes we need those people in our lives. You're right yeah. to say, you know what? You may not feel like going but this is what you truly need. This is what's best for you. And, you know, to be a brave friend, to say that to someone else, they may get mad. They may not go. They may go kicking and screaming and with a bad attitude like I did. (laughs) Uh, But, but you're being a faithful friend. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And just the, the truth that came from that, you know, the impact that it, began to have in your life and how God put that call in your heart to continue the impact through the way that you're sharing his word in such, you know, neat ways that God's showing you. So, you know, before we wrap it up here, I just have one more question for you. There's a quote from your book that says, sometimes to move past our fear of inadequacy, we have to turn around and face our fear. What do you mean by that? Can you tell, can you explain that one a little bit more in detail? Yeah, I was really fascinated. Uh, You know, Moses, of course, was terrified to obey God in this call, right? He was like, well, uh, who am I that I should go? And, you know, I don't really speak well. And, uh, you know, maybe you should pick somebody else like my brother, he might be a good option. You know, he gave God all of these excuses. And God basically began to reveal to Moses, um, what God was going to do in order to strengthen him and equip him to fulfill this call that God had upon his life. And one of the things that really struck me was when God uh, gave Moses the staff, right? He gave him something tangible Mm. that he was going, you know, that was going to be something so tangible that Moses held on to, to remind Moses of the moment of the call and that God was with him. And one of the things that God told Moses to do was to throw the staff on the ground and it turned into a snake. And I found it so fascinating that God did not, you know, tell Moses to just speak to the staff. He made Moses reach down and pick it up. So he essentially had to grab the snake And then it turned back into the staff. And we're told in scripture that as soon as Moses threw the staff down and it turned into a snake, he ran away. He ran from it. And God's like, now go back and pick it up. And I thought that was so profound that God did it that way because Moses could have ran off to a safe place. I mean, we already know his default in fear is to flee, right? He he fled to Midian, right? So now we're seeing him flee again. Um, and God's like, no, 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 we've got to stop this flea factor. You've got going on here, Moses. We've (laughs) got to stop this. You running away every time there's something scary or there's conflict. And so God basically said, turn around and go pick up, go touch the snake, go grab it. And of course we know as soon as he did it, boom, popped back right into a, a staff again. And so I think there's something that God is teaching us there. That if, you know, if we're a person who has a tendency to flee from all manner of conflict, we don't, you know, maybe we struggle a lot with people pleasing, um, whatever it may be. Uh, We hate confrontation. Uh, We'd rather trip over the elephant in the room than deal with issues that need to be dealt with. Uh, You know, we want to sweep things under the rug, but there's so much stuff under the rug now that the, the little throw rug is, is kind of like a birthday party hat on our mountain of issues stacked in the corner of our life. Um, God is saying, you, you can't keep ignoring these things. You've got to face them head on. 
um, and allow me to bring some healing to those things through my power. And that's essentially what he did with Moses's life is over and over. God is showing Moses, not only the greatness of his capabilities as God, but also the goodness and the kindness of his character as God. And through that process, he's bringing healing to Moses and he's building up Moses's faith in who God is. And so as long as we keep running away, it's never going to go away. It's not until we turn and face it and say, God, I've been running from this for so long. I know you need to deal with it. You need to deal with this fear in my life. And that's really how God led me to even write this book of letting God be enough. Uh, God brought me face to face with my own imposter syndrome and what should have been a moment of incredible joy and celebration in my life uh, was right after my very first book had been published. I had never dreamed that God would ever allow me to have a published book. And, you know, I'm standing in Moody Publishers in Chicago, and here's a book with my name on it next to all my heroes, you know, Tozer and Moody and Spurgeon and Wiggenhorn. <laughs> um, you know, and it should have just been this incredible day. But the entire day I was, my stomach was in knots. I, you know, I thought I was going to throw up. I was so nervous. Um, you know, all the joy was stripped from me. And as I got back to my hotel room that night, you know, God just said to me uh, in the quietness of my heart, he said, you know, how long are you going to let the enemy continue to rob you of joy? This was supposed to be a moment of celebration. You know, I, I was, singing over you with delight that you were able to have this experience and, and rejoice in this opportunity that I've given you. And instead you just, the entire day you walked around in fear and trepidation. When are you going to allow me to bring healing to your life with this lie that the enemy has just kept you in bondage over? And that was really the moment that I knew I was going to have to deal with this fear of inadequacy, this imposter syndrome. And so we all have fears, uh, whether it's a fear of inadequacy, a fear of failure, a fear of not being enough, a fear of the future, um, a fear of uh, a relationship falling apart. Uh, we all have areas in our life where we're battling fear. And God is issuing an invitation to say, stop running away. Stop trying to shove that fear under the rug. Come and bring it to me. Reach out your hand. Let me grab that hand of yours. And together, we're going to go to the promised land where you are free from that fear once and for all. Um, that's really the whole invitation of letting God be enough. And in the process, God is going to allow us to witness his wonders and the incredible kindness of his character in the same way he did for Moses, because that's God's heart for all of his children. Amen. Thank you so much for sharing and just being so open about that, because, you know, sometimes when people think about authors or musicians or this or that, they think, oh, they've reached this point where they never feel those things. And, and so it's just so um, inspirational to hear that and have hear it so clearly and, and openly. Thank you. And I love how you said, as long as you keep running away, it'll never go away. And that's just so powerful because, you know, that's just such the, we all have that sort of that fear factor that we just want to run. We just don't want to face it. We don't mm -hmm. want to, we don't want to deal response. with it, fight or flight, mm -hmm. you know? So yeah. what a powerful and timely message for, for people. I know our audiences, they're, they're going to want this book. Where can people get a hold of this book and where can people get a hold of some of the things that you've written in the past, the, the, uh, the Bible studies? Tell us, tell us more. Yes. Yeah, so the, the one-stop place where you can pretty much find out uh, everything is my website, which is just my name, ericawiggenhorn.com. It's kind of a mouthful, <laughs> uh, but you can order the books anywhere. Um, they're all published through Moody Publishers. Uh, so you can, you know, find them at Christian Discount Book. If you have a local bookstore in your community, please, please support your local Christian bookstore. Uh, we need to, we need to do good to our family of believers. Uh, if you don't, uh, you can order it online, uh, Barnes and Noble, of course, the almighty Amazon sure. <laughs> has it available as well. Uh, you can order it directly through Moody Publishers website, Books A Million, 
even Walmart or Target. Terrific. And do you have any social media handles that people can uh, follow you on? Yes. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram, which again is just at Erica Wiggenhorn or on Facebook at w- Erica Wiggenhorn author. Wonderful. What an honor to have you on the show today. I know we know this book's going to be so transformational in so many people's lives. Thank you for sharing about it today. Yes, thank you so much, Erica. Thanks for having me. Blessings to you. You guys as well. 